I'd like to introduce you Derek Jensen. His um, latest book is called A Language Older Than Words, and in this book he really ties together and makes a connection between uh, working to help people and working to advocate for the environment. So let's welcome Derek. Thank you all for coming. I'd like to thank everybody for sponsoring it, and I'd like to thank Maria and Dick and the students for such a great job of promoting it. This is actually the, the second best job of promoting any of my, uh, my gigs that anybody's ever done. The, the, the best job of promoting promotion that anybody ever did was, was actually this funky little place in Eugene, Oregon. They put out a flyer for my talk, and then they also put out a flyer for a talk for a person who was going to be there the next week. And they put my date on his flyer. And uh, the neat thing about that one was that the guy who was going to be there the next week was uh, Dick Ranger, poet and porn star. Unfortunately, one of his fans showed up, and that was this elderly gentleman who wandered around the whole time muttering that his welfare officer would only allow him to spend $4.75 a month on porn. So. He, uh, it was a good idea, but it just didn't work. <laughs> so I think what I'd like to do is to start by talking about how this new book came to be. And well, I think I want to go further back. And I'll talk a little bit about my first book. It's called Listening to the Land. And the reason I wrote that book is because I thought I was going crazy. Because there are so many things that are so crazy about this culture, but people simply weren't talking about them. And it really sort of crystallized for me, maybe must have been 12, 13 years ago when, I mean, I really like baseball, but I remember reading on page 24 of the newspaper that we're causing the greatest mass extinction in the history of the planet. And on page one was some article about some guy going from one baseball team to another. And once again, I like baseball, but I think I wasn't even that good. That was a joke. Um, the, the point is that for years, I just thought I was crazy because there were so many things I was concerned about that people simply weren't talking about. And instead, we talk about so much nonsense and so much stuff that, that was of such little consequence in comparison to the stuff that was really seemed to be important. I mean, we're talking about killing the planet. So that book was a collection of interviews with environmentalists and feminists and theologians and psychologists basically centering around the question of if the destruction of the natural world isn't making us happy, why are we doing it? The main reason I did that one as a collection of interviews was because I wanted it to be just not one lone lunatic who's saying this thing, but you know, a whole sort of collection of lunatics. And I wanted to, it was, it was I still remember in about 1987 or 88, I was browsing around the library and I came across this book by Neil Everenden called The Natural Alien. And on the back cover he talks about what do you do if you make some impassioned defense of some creature and then when you get done, the person you're saying this to says, well, that's nice, but what good is it? And he says, if if you have this, what you have is two worldviews in operation, you know, sort of in collision. And the appropriate response really is to say, well, so what good are you? Not to insult them so much as to just show the stupidity of a utilitarian worldview. And I read this in the library, just on the back cover, and it was like this huge weight went off my shoulders because in that moment I realized, oh my God, it's not me that's crazy, it's the culture that's crazy. So that was why that book came about. And then this book came about because I don't like factory farming, and, but I like meat, so I was raising chickens and ducks for eggs and meat, and I fish, and I hunt, and the, the, the joke among all my friends is that, I'm not caught, I'm such a terrible hunter, and the joke among my friends is that the only thing I ever get is lost, um, <laughs> which 
I get my limit back the first day of the year. It's like, okay, we're going to hunt this canyon over here, and you uh, go get lost here, and we'll meet at the end of the day. Um, and the joke about the chickens, man, I hate killing. And the, the joke about the chickens was all my chickens ended up dying of old age. Um, but the ones with the coyotes started to come to get them. So I didn't know what to do. So one day, more out of frustration than anything else, I asked him to stop. I, I said, please don't eat the chickens. If you don't eat the chickens, I'll give you the head, feet, and guts whenever I kill some. And also, remember my work in defense of the wild. I want to do the guilt thing, too. They stopped. They stopped coming to get them. At first, I thought, okay, well, that's an interesting coincidence. But then they didn't come back for months. So I started thinking there might be something to it. I started asking people at talks, how many of you have ever had a fully mutual conversation with a non-human? And everybody would laugh, and then somebody, it was always a woman, would sort of shyly raise her hand, and then more and more people would raise their hand until maybe half the people had their hands raised. And I'd say, how many of you have ever before admitted this publicly? And they'd all laugh and drop their hands. So what I was going to do is I was going to write a book about the dissonance between our public and private discourse about that. And I was going to, you know, it's like, kind of like the Height Report on Sexuality, where Sherry Height sent out to all sorts of questionnaires, when it was the first time you had sex, have you ever had sex with Dick Ranger, have you ever had blah, blah, blah. And this was going to be kind of the same deal. So have you ever had a fully mutual conversation with, you know, when was the first time you had a conversation with a non-human? And the interesting thing was is that this wasn't just people saying, go fetch my slippers to the dog. People were having conversations with rivers, trees, rocks, clouds, stars. So at that point, I was going to write this sort of Bambi meets Flipper feel-good book. And my agent at the time was ecstatic. She thought it was going to be this big New York Times bestseller thing. I tried to write that book and I couldn't do it. And the reason I couldn't do it is because I realized I was on, oh, I have to tell you this too. About that time, my dog started eating eggs. So I tried the authoritarian thing. I'd take an egg in my hand. I'd say, no, no eggs, no. And the dog would roll on his back and he'd wag his tail and go inside and eat more eggs. But so I thought if it works for the cows, it might work for the, the dog. So I just asked him to stop and he did. So I'm starting to think I'm really crazy at this point. And I called an Indian friend of mine, Jeanette Armstrong, who's an Okanagan activist and writer. And I said, I don't know what to make of this. And she said, yes, you do. I said, but it's so easy. And she started laughing. And so we've been trying to tell you that for 500 years now. <laughs> so I really started thinking about it. I didn't want to write just yet another book about showing that non-humans can think because that wouldn't question the things that need to be questioned. It would be like writing a book showing that blondes can think or that Jews aren't subhuman. You know, it wouldn't question the arrogance and bigotry that sets up that standard in the first place. It wouldn't have made any difference anyway because it's like the, uh, you know, the, the whole thing about Lucy and all the other chimps and apes that they've put in mobile homes and taught ASL. Well, how long have you been working with that stupid ape that still has the communication abilities of a four-year-old? It's like nobody ever asks which of these creatures is bilingual. How many of the scientists know chimp? And besides which, what would happen if a bunch of chimps kidnapped a scientist and put him in a mobile home? You know, how, how quickly is he going to catch on to what the chimps are trying to figure out? Or it's like Clever Hans. I, I love this story. Clever Hans, this horse on the turn of the century. And there's bunches of stories about how clever Hans was, that he could multiply, divide, find cube roots, find what day it's going to be on November 4th, 2027, everything. And he would do it by pawing with his hooks. Cube root of 27, pop, 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 and he's done. What they eventually figured out, and this is where every story goes with this, is that they eventually figured out that Hans wasn't so clever because what they realized is that he was reading the cues of the person who was asking. And the person wasn't trying to cheat. It's just like if the, if the answer is three, the person would slightly relax when Hans got to three. So all the stories I've ever read about this, all in the same way, which is, well, Hans really wasn't so clever after all. 
But wait a second. Would you rather have a friend who can find the cube root of 23 or one who can read and respond to your slight movements and emotions? What is really considered clever? So all those stories, they just, they just add to that same bigotry. So I knew I couldn't do that. So I wanted to write a story about why is it that some, some of us can listen and some of us can't? Or some of us do and some of us don't. My agent was starting to get a little nervous at that point. And then the whole thing blew open one day when I realized that before you can exploit somebody, you have to silence them. So what I really wanted to write about is the way that our culture has systematically silenced women, children, other races, other cultures, other species, our own histories, our consciences. Basically, at which point my agent bailed. Um, <laughs>